this policy has come from a global level and over a 20, 25 year period has fed down through the political structure, compartmentalised authoritarian political structure, right down to your, our, our doorsteps. And no one's been asked about it. This, the power has been assumed. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back. James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com, coming to you with a conversation that is being recorded on the 15th day of October 2021. And today we are talking to a guest that I hope you're familiar with from our previous conversation with him back in interview 1543, where we were talking about COVID-19 lock-in 20 and the death of statistical sense. I am referring to none other than Ian Davis of in-this-together.com which is a site that I hope you're familiar with. If not, I'm sure you were at least familiar with his work, as it appears on a number of other alternative uh, media sites, including, of course, offguardian.org and the UK Column. But today we're going to be talking about Ian Davis's latest work, a book called Pseudo-Pandemic, New Normal Technocracy, which is available via paperback as well as uh, um, in an EPUB edition. And the best way to get that would be from in-this-together.com slash PNNT. But of course, I'll put the link directly to it in the show notes. Uh, Ian Davis, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, James. Thanks very much for having me. All right, let's start talking about this book, Pseudo-Pandemic, New Normal Technocracy. Now, I imagine that most of my regular listeners and audience will already uh, be on board with the idea of pseudo-pandemic, or as I like to say, scamdemic. Yeah. But I suppose there are many different ways of defining that. So let's start with your particular definition. What is a pseudo-pandemic and how does that apply to COVID-19? Um, it's the um, uh, it's a threat of a pandemic where the evidence doesn't support the existence of a pandemic. So it's the over-egging of the level of threat, the scale of the threat. Um, and in the book, I, I very much sort of because at the time when I, you know, following from our last conversation, I was very much looking at the statistics behind uh, mortality and looking at the statistics around infection rates and so on. Um, and what I wanted to do with the book was write something that was um, look, looking at those and exploring those statistics in more detail. But at, and this was going back a few months, so we're talking early um, or mid-2020 mid, uh, when I started writing the book. But it rapidly became apparent to me that the, that the narrative was unfolding so quickly that it became important to me, I think, in the book to encapsulate the whole, as, as best as I can, to try and encapsulate the whole concept of the pseudo-pandemic. So that, that, that necessarily meant looking beyond the statistics, looking a little bit more at the history behind some of the people that were involved, trying to speak about how that, um, how that, process, how that process worked, how the whole, which I have openly called in the book a fraud. So, I mean, I think it's a criminal, a criminal fraud. Um, and, and depending on what jurisdiction you're in, that will depend on whether that, you know, how you would how you would charge that fraud if that ever came to pass. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to show a progress of the of the whole scam. And the reason that I called it a pseudo pseudo pandemic was I think uh, there was a the the term pseudo epidemic already exists in the in the literature it was it something that is a you know a a, a, a quote unquote official term um, and that has happened a number of occasions on the past there was um, a, a a u.s hospital where there was an outbreak or a suspected outbreak of whooping cough which ironically turned out to be wrong people that but but the but everything that happened in that hospital it's happened in on a on a global scale following the pseudo pandemic, and one of the things that that was um, uh, interesting about what happened there was that the that it that it was caused by the PCR test. So they were they were doing a PCR test for the for in this case whooping cough, um, and were the the PCR test was finding you know the, the sequences. Everybody was being sent home, so you had all the ramp, all the complications that come from the low staffing levels, the practical collapse of the hospital service, and it all turned out to be 
what ended up being called um, a, a pseudo epidemic. So I looked at looked at the literature and thought, is there anything in there for pseudo pandemic, which there isn't. And I've also I also thought it's very important into the book to sort of reframe the language that we are that we have had thrust upon us throughout this whole thing. And I and it became apparent to me that if I was going to explain this, I needed to explain it in terms of the flow of policy. So I, I started looking at how where policy originates, where these policies have originated in terms of the in terms of the pseudo pandemic, how that policy has been um, manipulated, why it's been manipulated, who has been manipulated been manipulating it and how that policy is kind of fed down through the what I have called a compartmentalized authoritarian structure um, to us so and, and that you know and as I was researching the book it it grew it's quite a it's quite a lengthy tome um, and it grew considerably to encapsulate all that and that and, and I thought that was important because I thought if even me as a researcher and a writer looking at it at the time, it was it was almost impossible to keep up with it. The the it was it was move it was so fluid and it was moving, the policies were coming so thick and fast, often those policies were contradictory. So you see so it was almost impossible to follow it. And I thought I need to make some sort of chronicle of this so that you know hopefully it will be a reference for people in the future to be able to look at and say you know that this is how it was done this is this is how the whole thing was done and that was the aim of the book well if that was the aim i can attest to the fact that you accomplished it because of the incredible detailed voluminous sourced documented footnoted information that you have in here including as you say that uh, pseudo epidemic of whooping cough at the Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center in New Hampshire in 2007, which you document here in the book. And you quote uh, Kathy A. Petty, infectious disease specialist at the University of Utah, who said, the big message is that every lab is vulnerable to having false positives. No single test result is absolute. And that is even more important with a test result based in PCR, which is a pretty important thing for us to understand here in 2021 if if somehow you have made it past through the past two years without ever having encountered this information, you might at least want to think to yourself, why? Why have I never heard about this pseudo epidemic that took place in uh, New Hampshire in 2007 and the ramifications that it has for what we're living through today? And there's a lot of moments that I think the, uh, the uh, uninformed reader will have in going through this book and finding out about specific cases like that. So let's lock, walk people through the book, because I think you do a good job of moving from the very specific honing in on the statistical fraud of this particular pseudo pandemic towards the bigger picture of what this is really about. So we go from, for example, chapter one on pseudo pandemic, and then talking about global public private partnerships, who cares about the risk, keeping us safe, the testing time, pseudo pandemic lockdowns, but then it moves on towards hybrid war, core beliefs, population control eugenics, sus sustainable eugenics, technocracy rising. So it starts to get into some broader uh, areas. Talk about that progress you know, that happens throughout the book. Yeah. So, well, I mean, if you can, we start with what was looked like. I mean, one of the things that struck me at the beginning of the uh, pseudo pandemic was the fact that everything that was coming out of China in terms of information and in terms of media coverage was just accepted by the Western media as if it was, you know, this is a proven fact. We shall just we should just parrot this to the to the public and that immediately to the Western public. And that immediately alerted me at the time thinking, well, when was the last time that the that we that we've ever done that, that the media has ever done that? So and then we start with because I was looking at the statistics from the from the early beginning, we start with the statistics weren't really there for for declaring a pandemic. Um, you know, the, there were people like uh, Professor Michael Levine that were looking at the statistics that were coming out of China prior to the World Health Organization declaring a pandemic. And he was clearly showing that this was um, a low mortality, a low mortality disease. Uh, which primarily affected older people uh, with, with, I would add, with comorbidity. It was not something that was a pre ever presented an existential threat if you were looking at it from both the scientific, medical and statistical evidence. 
Then we've got the um, the fact that the um, Public Health England uh, very early on downgraded the disease, saying that it it wasn't a severe threat. This and I, one thing that I was aware of in the book that obviously I'm based in the UK, so quite a lot of the policy that I've looked at is relevant to UK policy. But um, you know, I think this is this is global. I mean, there's every nearly every policy I looked at, you can look anywhere else. You can look at the US, Canada, you can look at Japan, wherever. Same similar similar kind of policies being trotted out. Not so much in Japan, but. Um, and then, and then, so obviously, the statistical, medical, and and ethical basis for declaring a pandemic is not there to begin with. Then I looked at the the, the World Health Organization have got form for this. They've done this before. Um, they did it in two thousand and nine, and I and it's the same people that are involved. It's the same characters that are involved. So the basis for the for the fear isn't there. So then I started looking at the propaganda around how that fear, un, unfounded fear, is spread. So then we're starting to look at how the media were involved in, you know, in doing that, in spreading the fear. And a very interesting document which came from SAGE, uh, which is um, the um, Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies in the UK, who advised the UK government about policy, um, was that they said very early on, I think it was in March 2020, they released a document saying where their objective um, was to cause fear, for the to increase the levels of fear for the public. So we're talking about a terror campaign, in effect. We're trying, well, they, they were trying to terror, terrorise people. But, but what they, uh, the interesting thing for me that struck me was says that we will use the media to do this. Now that when you when you look at how that was done, there's a lot of commercial contracts there. The the, um, the British government have got a multi-billion-dollar contract with an American um, corporation called Omnicom, who who run an operation called OmniGov, which you couldn't get much more Orwellian than that. But they they run this they run, they run this um, operation called OmniGov in the UK, which they which they say that they do media buy-ins. But they've got billions of pounds that they're throwing around with the UK mainstream media. Um, and effectively, what's happened over the over the course of the pseudo pandemic is that government has become the mainstream media's main source of income. So so they I'm talking about the print media and, and even to a, a great deal of the commercial media and, and broadcast media. There's also a regulatory structure. Uh, which on, in the UK we've got Omnicom and we've got a number of um, uh, we've got uh, Ofcom and we've got a number of um, regular of, of acts coming forward. We've got the um, online um, online safety act, which has just been proposed, which is going through the bills bill motions at the moment, um, which basically threatens to to create the ministry ministry of truth. Absolutely, the ministry of truth. They will have regulatory authority over the entire media, internet, and especially online. They they want to what they call um, um, authorized voices, or uh, what do they call it? Um, voices of democratic significance. So that, so so the so this will be the mainstream media. So the mainstream media, when Sage wrote that document saying that they intended to use the mainstream media. Well, obviously, if we had a, a genuine, pluralistic, free and open mainstream media, you couldn't do that. They, they would have had no realistic expectation of being able to do that. But they, they, they did. And, and thus the, thus the um, you know, the narrative was set. And I, and, you know, we look at look at people from um, the, the uh, Belgian minister, that um, Belgian health advisor, uh, Marcus Van Ramt, I think his name was, who gave a speech to the Royal Institute of International Affairs in 2019 or 2018, maybe. Um, he gave he gave a speech about how um, government could control the media during a pandemic, and he, he outlined it quite clearly. Um, you know, said, you know, you, you set the agenda, you set the narrative. There will be, you know, basically that you make yourself the, the, the single point of information. 
which is which is exactly what happened in the UK, in the US. You've got this single point of, no, of, of information. They control the narrative. Their objective in the UK demonstrably was to scare people. That was they, that was their, their the reason that they would do it. So the first thing you ask is if they're going to why are they why do they want to scare people? If there's a genuine pandemic, you wouldn't need to do that. You, people would naturally be scared. So you only need to create fear if the if the basis for fear is not there. And that's that's what they did. So then, from then on, you've got the raft of policies that came out that have, that have, and legislation that has come out on the back of the pseudo pandemic. So while people have been basically terrorised and distracted, they have introduced a raft of legislation which is creating a dictatorship. It's dictatorial. So one of them is the, um, I can never remember the names of the acts off the top of my head. It's the Crime and uh, Securities Criminal Criminal Intelligence Act, which they passed in the um, very near the start of the pseudo pandemic. That act gives the, uh, in the UK, gives government agencies carte blanche to commit crime. And there's no, and there is no crime that is ruled out of that act. So... Potentially, I mean, that includes murder. So so they, they have got carte blanche to do anything that they deem necessary. Now, one of the things that has been that's happened a lot during the pseudo pandemic has been the censorship of, of leading scientific voices, people like Mike Yeadon, Dr. Sukarit Bhakti, um, people like that. Uh, Michael Levine, he was one of the first first people to be just censored. I mean, they, they just I mean, he was putting out information way back in late January, February 2020, clearly showing that the level of threat wasn't that great, wasn't that high. He was just completely shut down straight away. He couldn't get his, I mean, anything that he put, that even people like myself that were sharing on think platforms just shut down, shadow banned immediately. So this, so this whole environment can be seen, and that's that's the that's the point that I was trying to make. And as you said, I, I put quite a lot of references in the book. That whole, and I wanted to be able to show that to people because if you if you tell this to most people, they just won't, of course they won't believe you. It sounds crazy. I mean, you're you're talking about a global conspiracy from their perspective. So I thought it was important to show how this this operates and how it is done, and to show them the evidence and say, look, I'm not just saying this, here's the policy documents, here is how this was done, here is the flow of policy. You can see these people in these think tanks making policy agenda statements, which then filter down into actual policy and then eventually legislation. And you can see that process in action. And one thing that, you know, is, is quite frustrating when people talk about, you know, whenever you mention the idea that this could be a coordinated global effort, is that people say, oh, well, that's not possible. How could it, you couldn't possibly do anything of that sort of nature, of that size? Well, this is complete nonsense. This is rubbish. We have, there are thousands of operations, global operations, multinational corporations are running exactly these kind of structures. So it would be a compartmentalized authoritarian structure where, you know, a few people at the top have an idea of, what, of the whole system, but most of the moving parts within that aren't fully aware. This is common business practice. It's NATO do it. Um, you know, th this, this is how large scale operations commonly work all the time on a global level with huge logistical operations with, you know, many, many complex moving parts. Including established organizations in the global public health space that have been founded precisely for this purpose to, to coordinate international activities in the case of, say, a pandemic like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and other such uh, philanthropic "Quote unquote uh, vehicles, including, of course, Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, which was again founded so to help coordinate the response to exactly this type of thing, and it constantly goes back to the same players, the same funding." Uh, you raise the important point that I think uh, there are two uh, essential audiences for this book. The, uh, the first category, I would say, are the people who are uninformed completely or not informed enough of the details of how this conspiracy has functioned and where it is heading. 
um, for whom the voluminous footnotes, as I say in this, will be extremely edifying. It's, it's a very useful resource on that front. I would say the other audience are the people who are informed on these issues, but either need to become more thoroughly informed so that they can better spread this information to others, or perhaps to use this book itself as a way of opening that conversation with others. Here is an incredibly well-researched book on these subjects. Let's read this and we'll go through your questions. Um, I think it would be handy as a resource on that front. And just as one example of the many things that you mentioned there, the, uh, Sage and more specifically Spy B, the Independent Scientific Pandemic Insights Group on Behaviors of the UK government, was specifically advising the government that they weren't doing enough to make citizens afraid and then advising them how be how better to terrify the public surrounding this pseudo pandemic and people who do not understand the specifics of that story that is the story in a nutshell in some ways because the governments are actively openly documentably being terrorizing the public actively setting out to create fear in the public and um, people who need that in uh, spelled out for them in greater detail uh, Laura Dodsworth wrote a, a really fascinating book called A State of Fear going through that entire a scam that was played out over the past year and a half um, absolutely essential to understand those bits of the puzzle but your book builds up to the bigger issue that is going on here which is not about this particular context of this particular pseudo pandemic but the why, not just the how, although it is important to understand the how and to overcome those those uh, objections, but also the why, which of course seems like the million dollar question, oh wait, inflation, billion dollar question um, that we are facing right now that has to do with things like like eugenics, like the uh, the climate change scam that has been perpetrated for decades now and has inculcated many of the same themes that are now being played on in the pseudo-pandemic. Trust the experts, follow the science, it's a consensus, how dare you challenge it. All of the things that were constructed to buttress the climate lies are now being used uh, in the biosecurity state. So these are, I think, the fundamental questions. And you hit on the real bone chilling. Uh, the, the thing that most people don't, even within the conspiracy space, quote unquote, don't want to wrap their minds around, that this is heading towards the extinction of Homo sapiens. I've said that before. I don't mean that figuratively. That is truly what where we are heading when we look at the transhumanist genetic engineering agenda that is uh, undergirding the scientific side of this eugenics quest that you draw out here. Tell us about the bigger picture of where this is heading and how they are going to bring us there. Yeah, so I focus very much on something called the global public-private partnership. Um, and I call governments within the book, I call them state franchises. So if we say that there is a global state, which is embodied by the global public-private partnership, um, and global public-private partnerships or public-private partnerships of that level comes from healthcare. So it's the World Health Organization that, for, that were first talking about these GPPPs. Um, and on a, you know, the, I have used that term to bring those GP, that, that concept of those global public-private partnerships together to say this is what we're looking at. It is global governance. So it's not global government. And I think it's important to make that distinction between government and governance because, you know, we still have a Westphalian model of national sovereignty. We still kind of work to that model on a, on a global global perspective. So it's very difficult for, you know, one nation can't make laws in another nation. I mean, that's that's part of the model that we kind of inherently accept, which goes with our with goes with our ideas of representative democracy, which I personally would argue is not democracy. But that's another point. Um so th this idea of this model, it, you know, it, it doesn't lend itself well. As, as Bozinski said, it doesn't lend itself well to the idea of global government, even with. And, and there have been some attempts, and maybe like the League of Nations, United Nations, that kind of thing. But it doesn't really work because, you know, you've, there are there are in, interests that, that are opposed to each other and that kind of thing. You know, I'm sure that the CCCP doesn't see things quite the same way as the American. I mean, you know, there are all these kind of conflicts that go on. Global governance works because it can seed policy agendas into every nation at once. So we've we've particularly seen that, well, obviously with the pseudo pandemic, but also with sustainable development goals. So if you if you look at the flow of policy, so where's that coming from? So that policy is coming from a globalist think tank 
a, a family of globalist think tanks. But if we just take the, the Club of Rome, they're coming up with this idea of seeding this idea of what that that basically humanity is a parasite, that, that we are we are the scourge of the earth. So they're so they're, they're seeding this idea as, as a set of policy suggestions loosely loosely wrapped in some kind of environmentalist agenda saying saying that you know um you know that there's something needs to be done so this go this goes to the there's a there's some bounce around in the policy think tanks this ultimately comes around uh, into the united nations with agenda 21 and agenda 2030 that then goes ends up being translated now into national policy so in the uk we've got with the government have made a commitment to net zero so one of the things that's involved in net zero is for example no more no more cars being produced or no more petrol vehicles and or diesel vehicles being produced after 2030 so so you've got this i this idea of this policies come from this think tank it's come down to a government level but if you then go anywhere in the uk you can just put in your local authority name into google if that's what you want to use or DuckDuckGo or whatever you can put your local authority name and follow that with sustainable development plan and your local authority will have a sustainable development plan now nowhere in this chain of policy delivery have any of us voted on it and with nobody nobody has been asked <laughs> a to d- define what the problems are B to to deliberate on those problems and say, well, you know, maybe maybe that that's not quite the issue. These just questions. This this policy has come from a global level and over a 20, 25 year period has fed down through the political structure, compartmentalised authoritarian political structure, right down to your, our, our doorsteps, and no one's been asked about it. This the power has been assumed. So who are the people that are doing this? <laughs> And how how are they doing that? And that's that's what I'm looking at in the book to say, you know, it doesn't you don't have to have kind of some some idea of and I mean, one of the things that I was aware of is saying, you know, quite often people think that or tend to couch the idea of of supreme capitalists, the stakeholder capitalists in, in, in this case being some kind of like Blofeld type kind of evil. You know, when, when we look at someone like Klaus Schwab, he even looks like Blofeld, you know. So, I mean, it's easy to, to think that about these people and to think that they have some kind of omniscience or something like that. And these are all powerful people, but they are not. They are not. They are just people, just like me, just like you. They make mistakes. They get things wrong. They have to adapt to their own own mistakes and errors, just like we all do. You know, but it is possible to trace that lineage of how how they have applied these, how that policy has flowed from a centralised point. And it has. And and certainly with sustainable development, what that means is a whole restructuring. I mean, you only need to look at Agenda 21 and Agenda 2030. It says in there about a, a total restructuring of society, living in human settlements restricted areas places where we're not allowed to go none of this has been put to a to any kind of democratic debate at all it has just been foisted on us without and people and and it's one of the frustrations and one of the reasons why i wrote the book is when you say this to people they cannot accept it they can't believe it you can show them the evidence and say well there you go that's that there's that evidence there's that flow of policy so these wider issues and these people are steeped in many, you know, questionable belief systems, which you can again, you can trace the, trace the lineage of that. I mean, certainly eugenic, eugenics back to Galton forward. You can you can see how that has crept into every area of their policy. And when you and when you look at sustainable development, that is clearly just another working of the eugenics agenda. But one of the one of the things that I was keen to pick up in the book, I mean, I look a lot at one of the things I look at is communitarianism. So this idea uh, put by the Amatai Etzioni about about com- communitarian, which which has been called in the UK and elsewhere civil society. So th- this idea isn't in itself about about us losing democratic accountability. 
actually the idea from Etzioni's perspective is to increase democratic accountability. But what these people do, and, and I would argue similarly with technocracy, if you if you look at technocracy, um, you know, what is that? Basically, whether they, whether it's right or wrong, when they formed the idea, when Scott and Hubbard and people like that formed the idea and Veblen and people like that formed the idea of technocracy, really, they were just trying to address an issue as they perceived it, which was resource allocation and, um, and problems with resources. But time and time and again, the people that are in charge of this gender, so uh, agenda, so for example, with technocracy, very much with the Rockefellers in, involved in that, don't care about the, the intent or the meaning of political philosophies of science, science or, or economic ideas. All they care about, and it's clearly evident from the, the way that they, the way that they, that it gets translated into policy, is how it meets their agenda, how it forwards and facilitates their agenda. So, in the case of communitarianism, they have taken that idea, which is ostensibly about increased democratic accountability, and have managed and have formed it into a set of policies which they're calling the new normal which absolutely removes. <laughs> so they've, they've taken the idea, but exploited it, flipped it on its head, and then now that removes democratic <laughs> accountability. Well, in, in a sense, that's, that's the trick on all of these things. I mean, sustainable development is a wrenching of ideas that most people would be on board with for an agenda that they most certainly would not be on board with. And it's generally done through painting things uh, in a way that people would would sad, sound nice to the ear, but don't look nice in reality, even, as you point out, net zero, which, of course, is what's being touted these days. But if you're in the know and you're reading reports for, say, from, say, UK fires, as you will have noticed from a recent uh, report that I filed on, absolute zero is what they're looking for, which isn't just net zero. No, no, no. Absolute zero. As in, you are going to be living as a medieval peasant, essentially, um, scrabbling to eke out an existence from the earth. That's what their vision of the future, at least for the commoners. And as we know, as we can absolutely crystal clear see at every level of the pseudo-pandemic, rules for thee, not for me. It's always a different uh, set of rules for the would-be rulers, or at least the people in the middle management class, i.e. the political class, who get to steward over this system on behalf of the real rulers uh, who are putting them in those positions of power, or at least wielding that that sort of political power. So, I, I think all of this, all of this incredibly detailed, as I say, documented, footnoted, sourced information is important. We do need a handle on specifically how this came about and why and where it is trending so that, as I've tried to make the point, especially over the past year of Solutions Watch, so that we can then construct our own plan for dealing with this, doing something constructive, trying to head off this agenda or derail it or in some other way, put ourselves into the mix in a way that will actually change this because this is not written in the stars. It is not inevitable. We can make a difference to this agenda. We can stop it from playing out at least the way that they are intending it to play out. And that's really the question I, I really want to drill down on. Ian Davis, with all of this information about the agenda, how it's being constructed, how it's being run, what do we do about this? Well, I think the first thing is to recognise that we have agency, that we that we are we're in charge. I think that, and, and I think we should we should acknowledge that we are in charge. It's up to us what happens. It's not up to what I have called in the book the parasite class. It's up to us. Now, but we just need to realise that it is up to us because uh, the people that are running this pseudo pandemic, they already know that. If you go, if you go back to the Munich Security Conference in 2019, you see the, the speech. So this, I think this, this happened when the, in China, it was already starting to emerge. So there was already the, the, the they were anticipating the pandemic already. So, that, so this, this was coming. So, it was in December uh, 2019, Tedros Adnan Ghebreyesus gave this speech at the Munich Security Conference where, and obviously, you know, he's head of the World Health Organization. Yes, it's a security conference, but nonetheless, you would expect him to focus on the, on the health aspects of security. During that speech, he made it very clear that the most 
And he said it was worse than the pandemic, was what they were calling the infodemic. So they, they, he was saying this is worse. Those, those were his words, that this is worse than the pandemic. So what are they talking about? They're talking about the control of information. So why for them is that worse than the pandemic? It, I mean, the pandemic wasn't a pandemic, but let's even if it was right. Why is it worse for them? Because because quite clearly what we think really matters to them. So why would it matter? Why have they spent all this time propagandizing, trying to control what we think, what we say, what we, how we feel even? They are absolutely obsessed with controlling us. Why is that so important to them at this stage? Why? Because what we think, what we say, what we do really matters. So it's something that is they are because it's not just enough that we accept the policies that are being foisted upon us. Clearly, they want us to believe in the policies that are being foisted upon us. That That's really important to them. So what that suggests to me is that, therefore, I mean, even if you look at it from a basic mathematical perspective, you've got 7.5 or 7.6 billion people who are very, very, very small, but very powerful and very, very economically powerful group of people are trying to control this vast swathe of humanity. If that vast, if if sufficient numbers of that vast wave of humanity actually wake up, then I and I and you know I mean and over the years I've been reticent about using terms like wake up. It all sounds a little bit arrogant from from our perspective, I guess. But I think no, forget it. It's all everything. We you know we've got to throw everything at this. People do need to to realise, to be aware, to understand, which is why I wrote the book. Um, that they that they they have agency, and it's not and it's not about. I mean, I I think we need to throw everything at this. I think I think I'm fully support any kind of legal or lawful challenge in the courts. That's really important, and you know I'm, I'm fully behind that. I fully support things like protest, protesting in the streets, uh, lobbying your MP, writing writing polite and 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 uh, well well referenced letters and emails and things like that to your MP. We need to try because I mean in in the UK certainly the MPs haven't got a clue about any of this. It's quite obvious that most MPs that are sitting in the Houses of Parliament in the UK don't understand what me and you and I are talking about. I mean, to what degree there are obviously those that do, but it seems like a lot of backbenchers, a lot of the rank and file MPs genuinely don't understand this. They 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 believe it too. They believe in this, in the the existential threat. So all those things are important. We need to throw everything at this. We need to get the information out there. We need to share it with other people. We need to communicate. That's all really important. But what really matters and, and how we are, in my view, how we are going to make a change is just by changing what we do every day and just thinking about what we do every day. So where we buy our food matters, where we get our energy from matters how we, you know, what what services we use matter. All this stuff matters. And if by, I mean, just in the UK, we have the TV license, which so people are paying basically a stealth tax for their own propaganda. Imagine what would happen to the, I mean, the BBC is an incredibly powerful propaganda voice in the UK. It only needs 20% of us. I mean, it's already been happening over the last few years that people have been dropping off the, the license fee paying population has been decreasing. But if 20 percent of us the next time round go, no, we're not paying it. End off. We're just not paying it. That will send a seismic shock to the establishment. Unlike anything we could ever do by, you know, in my view, protesting or, you know, anything like that. So. We need to consciously think in awareness about where we are at the moment, what what we are facing, which is an all-encompassing dictatorship, a global technocratic dictatorship, and think that the whole purpose of that is centralised control. So how do we oppose that? We It's decentralised freedom. That is how we oppose it. So 
we choose where we buy. I mean, and this means giving up the the disease, the the real disease, I think, of the 21st century, and that's convenience. We are obsessed with doing everything easy. So we we have to we can only go shopping at the supermarket. We have to get it all done in an hour once a week. So we'll go there, get it all done, and because it's easy, because it's 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 convenient. We don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about that. But if we're going to combat this, unfortunately, we we or not unfortunately, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. We do have to think about that. We do have to think where we get our food from. We do have to think about the choices that we make constantly. And if we make choices, supporting local businesses, supporting independent producers, supporting each other, working, you know, trading, bartering, working with each other, supporting our own community, supporting others around us. Because once sure as hell, you know, that the, we cannot rely, and certainly people that are unvaccinated, unfortunately, certainly cannot rely on provision, and we shouldn't rely on provision from the state. Our access to services, our access, everything is going to be controlled. If there's going to be a gateway of access, a biosecurity gateway of access that is going to control our access to pretty much everything. So we need to be self-reliant and, and we can do that. And it, But that means realisation and it means working together and it means actively choosing to go that extra mile and, and go to the farmer's market instead of the supermarket, which means planning, a little bit of, little bit of planning and that, that kind of thing. But if we do that on a mass scale, and it doesn't have to be, everyone on earth but even 10 15 percent i mean one thing that i've noticed during during at the currently that the government recently in the uk the government put out some statistics suggesting that about 85 percent of the adult population have been have been vaccinated but they've also put out some statistics saying that parents of bit of, of 12 to 15 year olds which they're vaccinating now. I mean, there's no test. There's no no trials for any of this. They're just jabbing people. They, they, they haven't got it. They haven't done any trials on this group. Only 11% of those people have been, of those 12 to 15 year olds have been jabbed because, reading between the lines, because of parental resistance. So how can you have 85% of the adult population you know what are the what are the percentage of that population that got twelve to fifteen year olds? I don't know, mate. Not much, four or five percent. But that's a that's a good representative cross section of of the younger part of the adult population. They haven't they haven't supported having their children jabbed. So then you start to think, well, now how can that be true if everyone's really keen on being vaccinated? Exactly. So what they are what they are telling us, none of it, and this is so important. None of it is true. None of it. It's all complete garbage. So I, I personally see absolutely no reason at all to believe that the government have, have, have vaccinated 85% of the adult population. I don't, I don't believe them. I'm not interested in what they say. Because time and time and time and time again, you look at it and it's just total nonsense. Rubbish. So why why listen to them? We don't need them. Why listen to them? And uh, yes, and I think that goes back to the message that resonates deeply with what I constantly stress in Solutions Watch. Yes, of course, you can try the lawful legal method. You can try political protests and things, and I don't dissuade people from doing it. But the ultimate... The ultimate gap here, the ultimate gap is the gap between our knowledge and understanding of what is going on and the fact that I know that they are lying to me, but bridging that gap to the action of I will not comply with what they are telling me to do because I know they are lying to me. And there is no, there is no book, there is no author, there is no talking head, there's no podcast that can make bridge that gap for you. It is something that you are going to have to choose to do. You're going to have to flip that switch and go from knowledge to action. And I can't do that. Ian can't do that for you. You have to make that choice. And it's a choice you're making every single day, either consciously or by default. 
well, you know, I got to go to the store, so I got to put on the mask. I got to scan my QR code. You know, what can I do? Well, that is the question. What can you do? And if you're not thinking actively about it, then you have already forfeit in this contest. Every single time you take an action that you know to be uh, based on lies and something that you are not comfortable doing, but you're going to do it because you're being coerced into it, every single time you do that, they win. And so the real win here, I, I want to say, yes, yeah, so organized noncompliance, mass noncompliance with these types of restrictions is necessary, but that isn't the end goal. It, it isn't, I think, something that simply exists in opposition to. No, it is about what we create. What do we create as the alternative infrastructure for this that makes, undermines the centralized control that they're trying to bring in? How can we create decentralized people-powered structures that we then contribute to and give our time and money and attention to so to flourish in that direction? That's really, I think, what this is about. And I think that's what you're gesturing towards there. It's such an important issue. But as I say, no amount of talking on podcasts or whatever is ever going to bridge that gap for someone. It is a choice that you're going to have to make each and every single person listening to our voice right now. Powerful stuff. And there's so much, so much more to talk about that obviously we've only skimmed the surface of today. But are there any other points you'd like to underline on this issue of the pseudo pandemic or other resources you'd like to direct people to before we wrap up here? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, I, I think the, the the key aspect is not to be overwhelmed, I hope. And that's another point of the book. Although the book is 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 quite dark, I suppose, you know, it's, it's quite relentless in the way that I have I have portrayed what's happened because it's it is it is a a, a tyranny that has happened so it, it's deliberately so however as i keep trying to stress in the book the point is these people are not superheroes we 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 have control we have agency we just have to realize it there have been a number of people that have been really excellent throughout the whole thing in the U, particularly in the uk about coverage in this um, um I, I write quite frequently for the UK column. I highly recommend people check out their channel, UKcolumn.org. It's it's um you know, they they have been solid throughout all of this um and have put out some tremendous work, work and some of their symposiums that they've done with so one of the things talking about what we can do. So UK column have done symposiums with the, the scientists that were censored. So people like Mike Yeed and Sukarit Bhakti, um, Michael Levitt, people like that, UK Column did a symposium and brought them together and let them air their views because they were kicked off social media. So, and obviously their YouTube videos were just taken off. Now, now something that's, so the solution, so what have you done, James, in terms of your YouTube channel? Your YouTube channel goes down and you've already got it mirrored elsewhere. You've got your site mirrored or not. It's it. You've got your IPFS site mirror and all that kind of stuff. We know this stuff is coming. If you're unvaccinated, we are going to have to make some hard choices because if you're unvaccinated, do not, life is going to get hard. It is going to get hard. They're going to make things Sim even basic things like going shopping difficult. We need to prepare for that. You need you need to be realistic about that. But it doesn't mean that life will be awful. In fact, life could be much better. And I think the key thing about us standing up to what is happening is to build something new, but but more to build something more humane, to build something that is better. Because at the moment, uh, the, the people that are trapped in this, like, like hamsters in a wheel that, that, that aren't, can, aren't aware of the information that we're talking about, they can't see any alternative in many, many respects. They're just, they, what, what is the alternative? I've, just got, I've got to do what I've told because I want to go on holiday. So I've got to do what I've told because I want to go to the shop. I've got to do what I've told. So... So we build something better, and when we build something better, we can say, no, you don't have to do what you're told to go on holiday. You can go on holiday here. You can go on holiday here. There's plenty of beautiful places you can see here or there. You know, we can, if we can build something where we can say, you can live your life as a free, sovereign human being, and actually, what you it's a, yes, it's hard. It's a little bit more less convenient than what you're doing, but it's better. 
Look at all the freedoms that we've got that you haven't got. We don't worry about any of this stuff. We're free, controlled by them, but we collectively are free. And when we can offer something like that to other people, I think that will be far more powerful than any book that I can write, any video, that I, anything, anything that we can say to people. You can shove as much information and evidence as you can in front of people, but if they are disinclined to even read it or watch it, then that's a big, big hurdle that is very difficult to overcome. And the only way you're going to overcome it is by, as I say, showing them something better. So definitely check out, please do check out UK Column. Uh, my own my own website, as you've already said, um, in this together with hyphens in between um, the words, the book is, is free, so you don't have to buy it. It, go on my website you can download the book for free you can download the epub epub version for free um and if you want to buy a hard copy then you can buy it through my website as well but you know i, I want this and it's totally creative commons license download it share it pump it you take bits out of it do whatever you want to do with it but just get the information out there because we've got to we've got to act you know, and it's no good. And that's why I wrote the book, because I feel that we just got to get get people involved in this. We just got to get people aware of what's happening at this stage and act. And you have raised some very important points right there at the end. So um, some important things to cogitate on. What do people want from life? And how much of what do you think you want has been programmed into you by the people who want to use those wants to control you? Uh, even people's desire for, oh, yes, I want the, the fancy sports car and I want the vacation to this or that lo uh, exotic location. How much of that is something you authentically desire and how, is, how much is that is something that has been dangled in front of you as some sort of carrot to lead you along a certain path? And if you really think about it, what do you really want from life and how do you construct that? Yeah, some incredibly important things to think about there. We'll have to do that in another conversation, though, we're going to leave that here for today. So once again, I will direct people to inthistogether.com, in hyphen this hyphen together.com, and the book itself, as you say, available for free download, or you can purchase a copy. And th those links will be in the show notes, along with everything else we've talked about today. A lot of food for thought, a lot of important information in this book. I do recommend it to my listeners. So Ian Davis, thank you very much for coming on today. Oh, thank you very much, James. It's a pleasure.